Hey, this is Trent Jacobs. I'm an editor with the Journal of Petroleum Technology here at the SBE. I'm joined by Steve Rassenfoss next to me. He is another editor at JPT. And uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, perspectives from another part of the world. Uh, we, we sit here in Houston, but recently I went to uh, the International Petroleum Technology Conference in Duran, Saudi Arabia, and brought home some uh, some points that we wanted to talk about. So we wanted to kind of get into what the, uh, the view of the U.S. shale sector is from the world of OPEC. Um, and talk about the energy transition, that, that it continues to sort of be a major theme in oil and gas today. That's Steve Rastenfoss here. And yet, I was uh, staying home while Trent was on his uh, Saudi road trip. And I was looking at the transition actually from the point of view of the future for workers be a future story. But in doing it, I realized when you're in Houston, you got a point of view. Actually, wherever you are in the world, it's a global business, but there's a lot of different points of view. And there's a kind of a Houston bias. I guess at the moment, a lot of that's because shale is just so in our face. And right now it's contracting, a lot of layoffs. It's it's not a happy time. Is it sunny in Duran? Yeah. So in Duran, it was interesting because uh, the you know the the conference IPTC opened up with several VIPs from you know the Arab world, from the OPEC world, um, and it also had a smattering of some of the uh, executive leadership from U.S. Shale, including Darren Woods from Exxon Mobil and um, and a, you know leaders from Halliburton and Baker Hughes. What, what was interesting is that uh, when asked about, you know, sort of how um, Saudi and, uh, and Bahrain might view uh, U.S. shale, the, the response was, was very patient. Um, so I think that uh, generally looking at uh, U.S., the, the Arab world is, is seeing that growth is slowing down just like we are here. Um, they also understand, uh, they've been saying this for years, uh, that really access to cheap credit was was one of the driving factors of what led to the oil glut in 2015, essentially too many players being having access to capital. Well, that's all turned around. So they were uh, very cautiously optimistic. So that, they're patient, I guess, because they're looking in the race, they're looking at their opponents slowing. Well, they're, you know, they're, they're looking at uh, possibly a 1 million barrels a day uh, of growth for the U.S. in 2020. Sounds kind of optimistic. Uh, well, that, that's the high side of the projections. Uh, you know, the U.S. EIA thinks that, uh, and that's the number that was used by Saudi officials uh, during plenary talks. Um, but later, you know, somebody who's very near and dear to the shale world, Mark Papa, who is the ch now the, the newly minted chairman of, of Schlumberger, but he's still the CEO of Centennial Development. And of course, he is the original uh, sort of leader of, of EOG uh, when uh, when black oil started being explored uh, for uh, shale. And he and he threw out the number that he thinks only 400,000 barrels are, are, are going to be put uh, into the growth factor for this year. So so I think the Saudis are sort of playing conservative with the million barrels growth. Um, and that's going to dictate uh, for, for them to, to maintain cuts on production. Uh, but you have Mark Papa coming out with a very low side um, estimation that would mean OPEC would actually have a greater role in uh, global supply uh, in the short term. And I guess you, you can argue with a lot of people about what the number is, but the trend line is, is unmistakably down. That's what I've been saying. So, you know, if it, whether we're arguing about a million barrels or let's just say it's 900,000 barrels in growth a day or it's 500,000, that's kind of splitting hairs. I was having this conversation with people on Twitter, too, and uh, you know, the, the, the signal is there that that, that the uh, growth is slowing. The big question is, does it, you know, not that it peaks this year or next year, but but has it peaked for good? Um, so some people predict that there will be a slump, and then 
Uh, fewer players uh, will, will be here. We'll have some of the uh, less healthy uh, producers exit the business, and then you'll have a bounce back. You know, that remains to be seen. You know, we know all the problems with subsurface physics. And so uh, with well spacing and, and fracture-driven interactions, frack hits, uh, those things are not covered by people that make these predictions, I think. You know, this is not, th those aren't built into the model. So, but uh, from the Saudi point of view, because that's the, the, what's beautiful, I think, about your trip is that you are in a, you can see this world from a really different kind of place. What are they doing to get rid of, a, get ready for a future where they get a larger role again in, in it? Well, I mean, you know, for Aramco, obviously they, you know, they're not just relying on Guar anymore. We, we've been, we've been writing about that and, uh, and they have other, um, fields that are getting uh, ramping up, and, and they have a lot of capacity. This, the, you know, Saudi Arabia still has the largest uh, technically recoverable reserves in the world. Um, but uh, on the flip side, you know, um, Aramco is clearly very, very inspired by the shale revolution. So I think there's a lot of uh, back and forth talk sort of from the OPEC angle saying that this is, you know, uh, represents a supply gut that was, you know, like we said, fueled by sort of access to cheap money. But on the technical side, Aramco is very impressed. Uh, for years, for six years, they've had their own shale development program. Uh, they have three shale plays that they're targeting in the country. Uh, two are near Guar. Uh, one's actually called the South Guar play, and then there's another to the north. Um, and uh, and uh, all three of them are in various stages of development. Um, but you know, they're they're watching and seeing what's learned, what's, what's working here. Uh, and importing it into Saudi Arabia. And they're doing, and they're trying to climb the technology uh, uh, ladder uh, a lot faster than people in the U.S. One example is th uh, they've adopted rotary steerable systems for everything they drill, um, which, which we talked about uh, with China uh, as well. It took over a decade for that to become ubiquitous technology and the U.S. shale revolution. But they've always been so focused on drilling very complex wells very precisely. So that seems logical. I'm sure on the digital side, they're they're really into it as well because they were, in terms of things like seismic, they've been into mega uh, data gathering for a long, long time. Aramco is big on in-house digital initiatives. They do a lot of you know they have plenty of partners. They have you know anybody who who can be a partner of Aramco probably is, but they love to do in-house stuff. Um, and so they're applying a lot of that subsurface uh, uh, technology, digital technology to their unconventional program. Uh, the, the head of this program actually said they have over 100 geologists working on it. So th this, this is uh, uh, a development uh, spread between three plays in Saudi Arabia, probably around 100 wells or less. And they have 100 geologists working on it. Well, geologists are obviously working with data. So, yes, I, I, you know, you've got to connect those dots and say there's a big digital uh, impetus on uh, this unconventional program for Saudi Arabia and obviously for their conventional program. Uh, but but one one thing that was mentioned to me on the sidelines of the uh, of the conference was that uh, Aramco sees shale as a very uh, as a long term vision. You know, even though they're they're starting to say that we're kind of we're producing commercial gas, and by the way, they're producing gas, not oil, uh, with these unconventional wells. That uh, that that they still might not be really ramping up or planning to ramp up for a decade. You know, one one guy actually told me he didn't think it's really going to be material for fifteen years. I do wonder how many years it's taken for them to drill a hundred wells. Well, six, you know, uh, so, you know, it, it, at least six, right? Five or six. And, uh, but they're, they're testing, you know, the horizons. They're, they're very much in testing mode. So even though they got some commercial production going, uh, I was also told by uh, another, you know, consultant familiar with the Ramco that a lot of wells are shut in uh, because there's no pipelines. You know, some of these are very, in very remote areas. Uh, others are a lot closer to Guar. So you can, you can make a pipeline, but, but some of these pipelines are still got to be, you know, miles and miles, dozens of miles long. 
Uh, those are big capital projects, but Aramco is now um, issuing contracts for those. They said at the conference that we have given out awards for for a couple of these projects. And as I said, you know, the big goal of Aramco's uh, shale ambitions is really to start producing a lot more gas. Uh, everybody thinks about them as a crude producer. Um, and, and the reason why they want to produce a lot of gas kind of leads into this next thing uh, that we're going to talk about, but it's because they want to replace the oil that they burn uh, to generate electricity, uh, partly because they want, they'd rather export that, but also because the country is going uh, through a, a major sort of carbon footprint overhaul here, and gas will be cleaner as an electricity source uh, for Saudi Aramco going forward. So I guess if they, a country with the most oil in the whole world is going to is looking at energy transition. We got to take it serious. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And so that's that's the big topic that we're going to get into next. And uh, we're going to take a quick break and be right back. Want to honor a colleague for their professional excellence? Now's the time to do so. SPE is accepting nominations for outstanding work in the E and P industry. Take this opportunity to help nominate your colleagues for the recognition they deserve. The international awards deadline is 15 February, and the regional awards deadline is the 1st of March. For more information, visit spe.org and visit the membership section. So, Trent, what, what does the energy transition look like in the, in, uh, the world's uh, most oily country? Yeah, um, it, it looks real, is I guess what I would say. You know, I think we're, we're in the early innings. Uh, this is, it feels like day one. Of, of the energy transition, even though there's um, a lot of headlines, a lot of projects going on around the world. But, you know, you, when you hear Saudi Aramco and Saudi, you know, the minister of oil in Saudi Arabia start talking about the need to decarbonize, the need to have uh, more transparent discussions with the world's consumers, because essentially you have consumers battling uh, the suppliers of, of, of the oil in terms of the cultural um, arguments that are being made. You know, it's, it's, uh, so, so the suppliers want to keep supplying, and uh, they know what that means to the the world economy. And you have Aramco. I mean, this is uh, the world's you know uh, you know world heavyweight of oil exports. So, um, I, I think that when you listen to Aramco talk about um, initiatives like the uh, carbon circular economy, uh, which is a sort of a new word for for most of us in the business. You, you gotta. Uh, you, you don't take it with a grain of salt like you may um, have a few years ago. This doesn't seem like greenwashing to me. Well, to me, it, it seems like when I look at any of these issues, it, it starts looking a lot more real when you see the economics behind it. And if they're looking, the story I was working on based on you know projections like the one from BP that showed by twenty thirty or so, your demand flattens out for temperature like that. They have, you know, they they are talking actively about what is the uh, post oil economy look like. How do you diversify and create enough jobs for all the people there? And it does seem like Aramco is going to be the uh, the cash for all that. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, you know, Aramco is now officially the world's largest publicly traded company. You know, even though only a small share of the company is actually um, publicly traded. But uh, so, you know, one of the things that they that they talked about was that. Uh, the energy transition is is not a straight line, and it's not a homogeneous um, you know mandate or plan. It's going to look different in different places, and so uh, one of the two of the areas that Aramco is investing in and talking about a lot is uh, you know helping to make engines, internal combustion engines, more efficient. Um, so this isn't something that uh, most other oil companies are concerned with. Actually, you, you see some of the European majors investing in electric vehicles. Uh, Aramco saying, you know, we're, we're going to open up an institute in Detroit and try to help make uh, the engine cleaner. 
another big thing that they talked up was trying to make air conditioners more efficient. So this actually ties back to why they want to make gas. The reason why they want to produce shale gas is to uh, cut back on the 900,000 barrels a day they have to burn in the summer to power all the country's air conditioners. And, you know, as I got to see by visiting Duran, um, there's a lot of ACs um, on the outside of, of six-story buildings. Um, so these are like window units, exter- small external units, and uh, not the 16C or most efficient thing that you would see here in the States. So they're looking at the technologies that will help them there. And uh, so, so they've got, you know, Ramco's an integrated company. It's a national company. So they think a lot differently, I think, than even international major would as far as where their tentacles can go to address the carbon problem that everybody's talking about. I mean, they, they've always, every time I go to a conference, I'm seeing the, uh, the Saudi Aramco hiring booth. They're always looking for people. Is, are they also hiring up to try to create the technical force to create this future? Yeah, I mean, they're probably, they, they feel like they're expanding. I don't have, uh, you know, uh, exact uh, growth numbers on their, on their employment. Uh, but we were talking about, the, you know, they, they, they had representatives speaking to the fact that they are, what, 70% millennial now. We were talking about that. So, so uh, the, the way that this feeds into employment is that uh, the companies that are talking about carbon programs, car- decarbonization programs, those are companies who are very likely concerned about recruiting the next generation of, of technical experts. It's basically one of the one of the list of things I heard about what to take to be a, a long term survival is a, a mentality that understands that you're in a competitive world that is going through a, a change, and so make sure your skill set uh, reflects that 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 change toward digital, change toward uh, less carbon, toward well, a really and, and different way of doing experts, things. Di- digital experts are not um, necessarily oil and gas experts. And so when you're trying to get people from outside of this industry or who are being trained to go into many different verticals um, and you want to pull them into this industry, you have to acknowledge the giant climate debate that's happening. And the, as a competitive edge, a, a differentiator, uh, you can say, well, my company's got uh, half a billion dollars worth of uh, green energy initiatives and investments going on. So if you're going to you know, work in the oil and gas industry, you surely want to work with a company like mine who is doing the most about this issue. Yeah, because even if you, you have your skeptical thoughts, you have to look at it and think if the whole world has decided to go in a certain direction, you're kind of, you kind of might as well go along with the big, with the big change. Yeah, and, and I mean, and to that point, I'll say that it's not just a Ramco. At this conference, you had the CEO of Total, you had the CEO of ExxonMobil, Baker Hughes, Halliburton, and several other companies. Uh, all of them were, were saying that, you know, to different degrees, we're going to reduce our carbon footprint. Some, are, some companies are clearly more, more you know, vocal um, about this and putting a lot more money uh, into it. Um, but, but to a T, um, there, was, there was a consensus, um, at least at this conference, from the biggest companies uh, in the world, uh, that we, we, we hear what people are saying, we care, and we're going to try to do something about it. Like I said, how they, how they go about it is different ways. Um, I don't think anybody's putting, um, um, you know, much more effort into it than companies like uh, Shell or, uh, or, or Ramco. But, uh, but everybody is, the arc is bending, if you will. So, so it look, the world looks a little bit different there. Yeah, it does. I mean, you know, uh, the, to me, the Middle East uh, is closer on this issue to where Europe is. Um, and then North America is, is following. And, and I think that um, 
as we hear Aramco and uh, the, the European majors talk about this issue, they, they really sound similar in, in their messaging um, and some of their initiatives. You know, BP and Shell are now the largest owners of electric vehicle cars charging stations um, in Europe. And I think that that's something that you wouldn't be, it wouldn't be unheard of to see Aramco um, put a bunch of uh, car charging stations all over Saudi Arabia. Arabia. That's uh, no insider information here, but that would not surprise me one bit. When, when we start seeing Chevron and Exxon make those, those investments, then you will know that, uh, that they are closing in on where the Europeans um, are on this kind of messaging and action. But so far, your Uber driver did not have an electric no, I didn't see any electric cars. Uh, you know, so uh, I didn't. Really, I, and I always look for Teslas because they're the easiest ones to find. Uh, I didn't see any car charging stations. I didn't see any solar panels. Um, I didn't see any wind farms in Saudi Arabia. But you um, sure, sure saw a lot of growth, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it's you know, it's, it's a vib- It was a vibrant uh, feeling um, in in terms of uh, the economy there. And uh, Duran is you know the fourth biggest city in Saudi Arabia. Um, and not necessarily a tourist place. It's kind of like lot like, like Houston, you know, where we, I feel like I felt like a sister city uh, when, when I went there. And uh, but but yeah, no, it's clearly vibrant. Every Uber driver I, I got into the car with that was under the age of 35 um, spoke English. Uh, almost all of them had a college degree. Most of those college degrees were earned in the United States. Um, they had very fond things to say about the United States. Uh, and almost all of them wanted to work in oil and gas. Uh, and almost all of those guys wanted to work for Ramco. And that was something I also ran into in this job story is that if you live in the United States, you know, there's a, a lot of negative talk about the, the oil industry is going to be gone. That the story begins with a question by st- a number of students saying, is there going to be a future in this thing? It sounds like it's different there. Totally, totally. I mean, at least for my week-long sample size, it, it very much felt uh, different. You did not feel like this was a dying industry um, being in Saudi Arabia. And, uh, and I think that's an important message for people to have because – Um, there's a lot of extreme positions being held, you know, but you look at, uh, we just put up on the, uh, JBD website, uh, this week, a story about the, uh, United States energy information agency saying that, uh, crude oil, uh, in the United States and renewables are going to coexist. Uh, they're both going to grow or remain at historical highs and they're going to live together for the next 20, 30 years. Um, so, so the U S is producing, uh, nine to 10 million barrels a day, five years from now. And so is Saudi Arabia. Well, they're also going to be investing a lot in renewable technology or clean technologies or things that can take carbon out of the air. Um, so, so we're in this we're, we're in this estuarial period of time where both things um, can live and not be mutually um, exclusive. Well, as one friend of mine once said from Detroit, uh, the three fundamental freedoms are life, liberty, and a V8. So, I guess it'll take a long time for us to completely drop that idea. Are you considering becoming an SPE member? When you join SPE, you join a society of dedicated professionals just like you, working to address the technical challenges of the global oil and gas industry. SPE membership gives you the opportunity to make local and global connections and build a network of influential technical leaders from every discipline. Learn more at spe.org join. So, you know, staying on this topic just for a little bit more, one of the uh, one of the interesting panels that uh, that they had at IPTC was discussing sort of what are these alternative ideas, right? We covered like sort of what Aramco's doing with uh, engines and uh, air conditioners, but there was a whole like long list of other sort of out of the box ideas that the industry can help uh, either finance or invest in and 
um, or adopt. Uh, and and people were talking about, you know, plants, and that's become a big theme. So, you know, uh, I think Shell's committed to planting a, a, a ton of trees. And, uh, and one of the ideas was that uh, uh, this is actually being worked on in Saudi Arabia, uh, from an institute being funded in part by Aramco, they want to make energy plants and use genetic modification to uh, make plants, you know, have longer root systems. And maybe those root systems can turn carbon dioxide into polymers. It doesn't break down easily uh, because, you know, plants can be turned into carbon pretty easily. And that's how we, you know, got charcoal in the first place. Uh, so there's lots of ideas like that. Uh, but I wanted to just finish with one other thought that uh, was offered during one of the panels at IPTC. It came from Scott Tinker, who's the director of the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas. Please try to say that one uh, fast three times. But he's, he spent several years studying energy poverty and, and issues around climate change. He's made a documentary. Uh, we, we've spoken to him before in the course of reporting. He's a really, really good speaker. I, I said on Twitter, you know, this guy is a deep thinker. He's a very nuanced man. Uh, but he kind of uh, uh, tried to reframe this whole discussion around climate change and decarbonization and just kind of put a little uh, bit of perspective on this, which is a lot of the uh, clamor um, and debate, whether we, you know on both sides, whatever side you're on here, a lot of the debate's coming from uh, the most developed countries in the world, the most industrialized countries in the world. And you know he just pointed out that you know um, that we have to have this discussion about the whole world. Uh, he noted that uh, Vietnam is going to develop uh, or build 50 more coal-fired power plants in the next 15 to 20 years. Um, and he's saying, you know, this is a narrow country. It's a thousand miles long with jungle. They do not have any solar power or wind power. They're not going to cut down the jungle to install that stuff. Uh, you know, these are the realities, Tinker said. And, uh, and he said, you know, talking about places like Vietnam that, that where people, more people die because of uh, inhaling uh, soot from, uh, uh, you know, the coal that they use in their kitchens or wood, uh, they, as a matter of fact. Yeah, yeah. or wood, charcoal. I mean, I, I you know, I, I've mentioned this a couple of times in, in, you know, different podcasts, but, you know, I used to live in Haiti uh, for two years where, where I burned uh, charcoal, um, you know, from the, the little trees that were left in that country. And, yes, it makes a lot of smoke, but that was that was the fuel that you bought on the street to, uh, to cook well, but with. But he treated it as an inevitability, or do you think we could sell him some LNG anyway? Well, I mean, you know, yeah, maybe. I mean, LNG, he, he's saying that, you know, LNG might make more sense than, um, you know, telling uh, Vietnam to slow down its economic growth so that it can put up, uh, invest in wind power, which might be more expensive. So, you know, uh, I look at energy like this. It, it, it follows the path of least resistance. And if you're going to ask uh, Sub-Saharan Africa to, to put their economies on hold after the United States and Europe had 100 years of unbridled economic growth and burning lots of carbon uh, to do it or generating lots of carbon to do it, you're going to ask the rest of the world to, to, to try and stop growing. Um, and, and, and the argument that Scott's basically making is, A, that's not really practical. B, it's really unfair. And, and so we need to have um, his whole message, and I totally agree with him on this, his whole message was the, the world, the industry and the world need to have an honest conversation about these issues. And, and engineers um, listening to this, you really have a sensible voice in that space. And, and you know, to borrow on you know, something I said earlier, these things are not mutually exclusive. You can be an energy producer and you can take climate change very, very, very seriously. And I think anybody who works in Australia also knows that the engineers keep coming up with things that lead to... Uh, a, a world, an industry that evolves in very unpredictable ways. So when you debate these things, understand that the economics and the innovations gonna might take us to a place none of us expect. 
Yeah. And, you know, I think we all just need to listen to each other more um, and and maybe um, understand, like you to your point, this this debate will evolve in five years. I've seen it evolve since I joined the industry in 2010. This and I don't know about what your perspective on this is, but I mean, climate change was was more or less here um, a, a taboo subject 10 years ago, whereas now it's headlining major SBE conferences. Um, it's the it was the May, if you walked out of the first day of IPTC in the, in Saudi Arabia, you went home thinking about wow the energy transition is a huge topic. Yeah, and just recently I heard about some comp- some people in uh, Asia talk having beginning to talk about uh, whether the LNG they're buying from the United States involves a lot of methane leakage. It's change. It's going to change the business in a lot of subtle fundamental ways well and we just put up a story about you know startups raising money and um a couple of the companies that that raised big money and one got acquired were uh methane detection companies you know methane leakage mitigation technologies um so yeah you know keep an eye on all this stuff we could do a whole episode on methane mitigation and emissions we probably um probably probably such a big topic it deserves uh having an expert come in but but, but you're I, all petroleum engineers, so you'd probably rather l- us talking about how you can get more of that stuff out of the ground so you can well, make a living. Or, or keep it in the pipeline, you know, um, so <laughs> so make more money. But uh, but anyways, yeah, that's all I had. Uh, you know, I, I, IPTC uh, is going to be in Kuala Lumpur next year, but then in 2022, it's going to come back to Saudi Arabia. It sounds like Saudi Arabia and Ramco um, really were happy with the turnout over, I, I believe, the, the high estimate I saw was 18,000 uh, attendees, which which was, you know, uh, broke broke the records in spades. Uh, a lot of interest, and it's good to see a multidisciplinary event happen in um, in that part of the world. So I was very honored to go. Um, and uh, and with that, you know that that was all I had to offer. So I think we'll let everybody go. That's it. Keep keep looking for it. <laughs> okay, we'll be sure to uh, check in with us online at JPT and uh, follow SPE online at uh, on our Twitter and LinkedIn accounts. I'm Trent. I'm Steve. Thank you very much. SPE podcast is powered by the Society of Petroleum Engineers the largest individual member organization serving managers, engineers, scientists, and other professionals worldwide in the upstream segment of the oil and gas industry. Learn more at spe.org.